Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you are listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, July 20th, 2007. This week, episode 46 comes to you from Studio B in Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes or Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Good afternoon, Joe. Hello, Cliff. And our cyber jockey, CJ Zach Slotnick. Good afternoon, Joe. Oops, sorry about that. Don't hurt yourself. Oh, not again. (laughs) Don't hurt yourself, buddy. All right. uh, Today's show is going to have three segments. We've got the microband trivia quiz. We've got Joe Arrigo from Arrigo Restoration. Uh, We've got the roundup, and uh, it should be an interesting show. Joe's a quite interesting gentleman. He's been able to do some things that most people thought were impossible. But anyhow, before we get started, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon, J-O-N-D-O-N.com. To contact the show, you go to the TalkShoe, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E.com website. Follow the directions to get your PIN number. Our show ID is 1547. We also really appreciate the emails and questions that come in by email. You can email me at joe.hughes, that's H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com, or cliff at cliff zlotnick, that's Z-L-O, I'm sorry, C zlotnick, at cs.com, and zlotnick is Z-L-O-T-N-I-K, or you can post questions on the forum at iaqradio.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust. Let's turn it over to Cliff for the microband trivia question. Thank you, Joe and Zach. First of all, let's tell you how to contact us. You can text in the, the IAQ form on our website. You can fax in the answers to the questions at 
262-7150, or you can call in answers to the questions at 800-332-6037. Unfortunately, there were no correct answers to last week's trivia question. The microband trivia question for Friday, July 20th. We would like to know who identified the person to whom these four sayings are attributed. Never believe anything in politics until it has been officially denied. People never lie so much as after a hunt, during a war, or before an election. When a man says he approves of something in principle, it means he hasn't the slightest intention of carrying it out in practice. And laws are like sausages. It is better not to see them being made. Back to you, John. Okay, thank you, Cliff. I think some of our uh, trivia experts might be on vacation or something here this summer. They've they've missed a couple in a row here. We'll have to. Uh, looks like some of you have an opportunity to win some nice prizes from the microband folks here. I'm going to turn it back over to Cliff to introduce our first guest because I know they go back a long way and uh, Cliff was uh, lucky enough to be able to get him on the show for us. Thanks, sir. This afternoon's guest is a special person to both the industry and to myself. Joe Arrigo is a 30-year veteran of the restoration industry. Joe's credentials include certified restore, water loss specialist, and certified mold remediation supervisor. His service to the restoration industry has included being secretary to the board of the Restoration Industry Association, both the association and its foundation. Joe has chaired and guided the development of the building science chapters of the IICRC standards S500 for water damage and S520 for mold remediation. In 2007, he was the recipient of the prestigious Martin King Award for his leadership. And what he received that award is the subject of our interview today. Joe's restoration business is a DKI network member, and they respond to disasters in southern Colorado and northern New Mexico. What we said last year, mate, we can recall. And that mutual agreement wasn't mutual at all Cause we made this small print incredibly small We got this new legislation Freedom of choice with a gun to your head Your right to work hard until you drop dead Or we'll get some other fool in here instead We got this new legislation Freedom of choice with a gun to your head Your right to work hard until you drop dead Or we'll get some other fool in here instead Cause we got this new legislation Thanks, Zach. Freedom of choice with a gun to your head. There's an old adage that you can't fight City Hall. Joe, it seems that you've gone far beyond that. Not only fought big business and governmental bureaucracy, but you won. Can you explain to our audience the matter which was at issue in Colorado? Well, good morning, Cliff, and and thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to uh, explain uh, what the effort was for what we were trying to accomplish. I think um, those of us that have been in the industry for a number of years have uh, 
seen the speed of change happen so quickly that it's it's been difficult to uh, adjust uh, rapidly enough to uh, to to stay in the business that uh, we created over the last uh, 25, 30 years, and uh, certainly the restoration business uh, isn't a whole lot older than that, uh, at least in the way we know it. And what had begun to happen uh, was that uh, as the uh, large companies became larger and larger and uh, the insurance companies uh, and the, uh, began to um, try to control their costs, uh, there were a number of developments that became uh, problematic. Basically, uh, if we think about the auto industry, uh, they began to, if you had an accident, uh, eventually you did not have a choice of the vendor that would repair your car. Uh, each each uh, individual company would have a contract at the national level to send you to a particular vendor, and they would fix prices and fix uh, procedures and uh, payments and that sort of thing. And it took the consumer, who was the owner of the policy and the owner of the uh, property that had a problem, it would take them out of the decision-making process. And uh, that was something that bothered me. So uh, the the steering of uh, someone who had a problem with the property to a particular vendor uh, without uh, the consumer having a choice was a a considerable problem. And so that was the initial uh, impetus for trying to do this, to protect the consumer. And obviously, the second part of that is self-serving. I'm in the restoration business. I'm a small contractor. And that what was happening was being from a small place, you were a smaller player, and these contracts were being made in uh, large places with large players, and they consequently could uh, create considerable problem for uh, the small business. So the things that we were trying to do served two purposes. One was to serve the consumer, who is our customer, and also to serve small businesses, which, uh, in I think many people's opinion, uh, America is run by small businesses. Uh, I think think we know that, uh, even though some of the big players continue to get bigger and bigger, uh, small business is really what turns our economy, and and I believe that, and that was the reason for for trying to to do the uh, work on the legislation we worked on here in Colorado. And that legislation, Joe, um, how long have you been working on trying to change this? I guess I'm, you know, Cliff's the water damage and uh, the restoration industry guy. I come from the indoor air quality, industrial hygiene side of things. How long has this been going on, this steering of uh, contracts to uh, preferred providers? Well, my awareness of it uh, began began probably – as much as five years ago when it began to happen and and when we would sit around in in meetings and so on uh, all practically no one thought we could have an effect on this it we could see what was happening i i always told the story that we were be at the beginning of becoming hmos very similar to the 
physicians and to the healthcare industry, uh, I could see what was coming uh, in, in the future, and I and I think the large part of that, while it might have begun earlier, is has been about the last five years. You know, we hear we always hear people say there ought to be a law. I mean, what what made you? I guess first of all, what you kind of explained what led you to uh, try and work on changing this, but I'm, I'm wondering what made you think you could be possible, or did you think you were uh, going to fight City Hall and it was not going to be possible? Well, uh, perhaps I'm just not very smart and didn't know that didn't know that it couldn't be done. I, <laughs> I, I think one of the one of the uh, one of the quirks in my personality is if you really want me to do something, tell me it can't be done. Uh, that's an. I don't know where I developed that, but it's it's one of those, uh, one of those things that when, when you see things that are either ethically or morally wrong, you do not have a choice. You have to try to correct them, and that's the, you know. Joe, I'm not going to let let you off the hook. Uh, Joe asked you a question, and I'm not sure that you exactly answered it. And I'm going to just rephrase it a little bit. Was it one event in particular that pushed you over the edge? Or was this a cumulative effect where this was building up for some time and, and so on and so forth? Well, I, I think uh, initially, uh, again, my vision of seeing what had happened, I'd had friends who were physicians and watched them lose their practices or older physicians retire because they, uh, as the HMOs were happening uh, 25 years ago. And I remember uh, those that resisted uh, got punished, uh, they got <laughs> eliminated, uh, so on and so forth, and, and eventually some of them had to adjust, but as the HMOs failed for a number of reasons, and of course now we have hybrid-type situations, I, I could see that coming, coming, and so it did develop over a period of time that I thought if we as a group, as an industry, do not react to protect ourselves and our customers and our consumers and our communities, this this is we can get into it a little bit. It, it it is much broader than just our individual businesses. It affects our communities, and uh, as I could see that happening, I resisted. I think that if there was a single event that happened, is what began to happen is the very large companies, uh, the the major casualty insurers, began to develop national contracts at a national level. And you, if you had a, if you were a consumer that had a, a property damage, you were guided to uh, one company who would uh, agree to fixed prices, et cetera. And as I saw that happen, uh, that that happened at the national level, and I thought this is this is just something that has to be addressed in a uh, in a more open, transparent way. And to get that done was uh, was not easy. Well, let's let's talk about how you got that done. Let's let's go into a little bit about the process. What I, I assume the first step in the process to is to attract the attention of some state legislator or sen- senator. Um, how did you go about doing that? Well, in in my case, I was very fortunate. I had of uh, a uh, state representative. Uh, lady's name is Dorothy Butcher. She's uh, uh, had seen a considerable difficulty in uh, 
and health insurance uh, handling. And so she was already very geared to uh, the problems that were happening uh, with consumers being uh, having difficulties with the way their health insurance was handled. She had introduced those sorts of things uh, within our state. The second thing that happened was there was another uh, legislator who was very concerned about the way auto claims had been handled, and he had introduced uh, legislation in 2003, uh, which uh, we patterned our legislation after. Uh, if you remember 2001, 2003, around those periods of time, some of the very large insurers uh, across the United States had been there had been litigation in a number of states where they had been fined uh, very large sums, uh, literally hundreds of millions of dollars for uh, guiding people to vendors who would put in secondary parts without telling them and uh, this sort of thing. Uh, so the auto industry had a history of uh, some of these problems and they were being corrected in different parts of the country for autos. Uh, I saw that uh, legislation and I thought, this is exactly what we need to do for our industry. We're dealing with buildings, but there's still property, there's still personal property and these things. And if they can do this for autos, we can do that. So, so they had done that for autos, Joe? Excuse me, I didn't mean yes. to interrupt. That So they yes. did do that for autos and then you patterned your after your uh, process after that. I think Cliff has a question for yeah, you. Yeah, Joe, who actually wrote this proposed law? Did you participate in the wordsmithing or suggest verbiage because they may not be familiar with the terminology and nomenclature of our industry? Uh, actually, uh, I was able to do some of it, a large part of it. The initial bill, before we did begin to wordsmith it, uh, mimicked the auto policy almost uh, without exception. So that had been done, in my case, had been done uh, before uh, I did I'd done that. And since the legislature, in this case, had already passed it with a respected uh, colleague, it, it was uh, reasonably easy to convince uh, the representatives that uh, we just needed to broaden the the scope, in other words, deal with deal with the consumer's property, whether it be their home or their car. So that was the approach we took. We we were later able to add uh, terminology uh, that that helped helped us in, uh, in the situation with our industry a little bit more. But uh, it, it, a lot of it was was written uh, previously for the auto industry. What was the experience like testifying at this state legislative level? Was the tone, were the questions that you were asked, were they trying to be inquisitive? Were they friendly? Were people hostile to you? Or all well, of the above? <laughs> uh, it, it was mixed. I, I must say that uh, one of the things that you learn through this process is uh, you don't have a lot of time to talk to these people. They're extremely busy. Uh they have many, many things on their schedule, and when you go into these hearings, you have, uh, while they're very uh, fair and reasonable and they'll give you all the time you want, they really seem to have pretty short attention spans. You only have a few minutes to make your point. It needs to be short, concise, and very thorough and go on. Now, 
because these are political uh, situations, there certainly uh, were people who uh, disagreed, and we had uh, on a couple of committees and a couple of committee hearings, we would have uh, someone who was uh, very, very challenging uh, just because they thought um, that was their position and they, they were not that was not always pleasant. But uh, for the most part, in this particular situation, the committee hearings that I testified at and uh, listened to, they, this particular issue seemed had so much support. We had bipartisan support to the point where uh, the votes were uh, like 57 to 3 or uh, 34 to 1. I mean, we had unanimous support coming out of the entire legislature, let alone unanimous support out of the committee. So we we felt very good about um, the, the fact that we were able to convince these people that this was the right thing to do. Joe, let me just uh, back up for a moment and, and recap the process for our listeners. So you, you found a legislator, in this case uh, someone from the State House of Representatives, I assume. Is that accurate? That's correct. That person then in you know working with others writes a bill and that goes in front of a committee not necessarily the entire house of representatives state representatives and you testified at those committee hearings first that's correct then it moves on to the full house and you had very good um very good acceptance at both of those levels yes and and the, the the learning curve here, what you find out is you get through one committee, it goes to a second and a third committee. And for instance, uh, you may be talking to uh, a business committee, and the next committee is a finance committee who has to uh, okay a certain amount of uh, financial responsibility and so on and so forth. So you have to go through those committees. But then when it goes to the House floor, it gets read uh, a second time and amendments and uh, uh, discussion can happen at that point. That's a very, very critical point. And then it sits for a while and they put it on the schedule and eventually it comes up for the third reading and that's when you, it's either thumbs up or th- thumbs down at that point because they, all of those, each one of those points, you can fail and if it's if you fail, you're done for that year. And that's so, that's a great point you bring up. I'm glad you you mentioned that that there are several committees this has to go through, and there are several opportunities then for people who have special interests uh, to kind of put a monkey wrench into things at those levels. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And then it has to go to the Senate from there, or do you have did you have a sister bill in the Senate that you were working on? In in our case, we um, uh, we did we did not have a uh, comparable bill introduced in the Senate, but we did have uh, a senator who, uh, his name was Abel Tapia, who also understood uh, our situation because we sat down and and talked to him, and he agreed to sponsor uh, the bill in the Senate. So it came from the House, was presented as a House bill in the Senate by a well-respected senator and uh, then you start the process all over. You begin. You testify at the hearings, uh, through committees, and as it passes through the committees and any amendments that they might offer, uh, in, in the case uh, 
of adding amendments, they then have to go back to the House committee to either approve or disapprove the amendments. And, and so it, it takes time and it, and it takes uh, constant vigilance to make sure that uh, the language continues to go the direction uh, of the intent that you're trying to have in some influence. And consequently, you know, anybody can, can uh, introduce can, things in, at that point. Right, interject at any point, maybe get their representative because they represent some other interest to try and put an amendment in there that would uh, kind of, you know, put the monkey wrench, so to speak, into your process again. Now, once that happens, we've got the House, we've got the Senate. They've agreed on this bill. They've both passed this bill. Then it goes to the governor. If he signs it, you've got this uh, legislation in place. Is that accurate? In, in our state, uh, if the governor signs it, it becomes law uh, immediately. I mean, sometimes I suppose they may have dates on it. I'm not clear about that. But in when the governor signs it, it, it is law. Okay, great. I just wanted to make sure we had the process accurate for our listeners. Now let's go on, Cliff, to uh, some other questions. Joe, where was the state insurance commissioner of Colorado in this process? Did they weigh in? Did they not weigh in? And do you know whether or not they are an elected official or an appointed official? Well, uh, that's an interesting question, Cliff, because uh, we have legislation in our state of Colorado right now that was introduced by uh, the same representative, uh, Ms. Butcher, uh, to have an effect on the question that you're asking. Our uh, insurance commissioner is uh, appointed, and uh, that office uh, has been... uh, I'm not sure that they've been very active, or maybe I just wasn't aware of it, but it's been not as uh, public as uh, she would like to have it, and she's sponsored a bill to have uh, the state insurance commissioner be an elected position. Uh, that's, That's in the works right now. So our commissioner at this point is appointed, and I must say neither they nor a representative from the office was ever uh, was ever in attendance or uh, ever made any uh, any appearance. Now, the only effect on them that I'm aware of is when the when a bill passes that affects them, they are allocated a certain amount of money uh, in their budget because if if they figure they're going to have a certain amount of complaints coming from a certain piece of legislation. They have to assign a certain number of hours and people to that in their uh, budget process, and consequently, that's one of the reasons you have to go through a finance committee. They have to assign some money to that office, uh, to the insurance commissioner's office, saying it's your job to review these, these particular issues. That way it's not an unfunded mandate that just kind of, you know, you've got a, a mandate there that doesn't have any way of being enforced. That's we we all know of legislation that uh, <laughs> doesn't have anything behind it because it's not funded. Yet. Well, Joe, um, now during this process, I assume there was opposition to the bill. Who who was the opposition to the bill, and what's what's you know? I mean, let's play, let's be fair. I'm sure they had some reasoning. What was their reasoning for opposing this bill? Well, we actually introduced this legislation uh, in. Uh, 2005 and during the 2005-2006 legislature, 
we received unanimous uh, support out of both houses uh, in Colorado's legislature. Uh, and I, when I say unanimous, I mean it was there were not four votes in the entire legislature that were against this. But it went to the governor's office, and the governor in this case was a uh, not of the same party as the controlling House and Senate, and he vetoed it. And so we lost. It was that simple. At that point, um, there there was obvious uh, influence by uh, outside parties, and uh, uh, the governor did veto it. Now, uh, in the following session, we reintroduced a bill with even a little better language as far as we were concerned. We again went through the process and came out with unanimous uh, votes, and when we sent it to the governor, who happened to be a new governor, uh, it, he he passed it, and that's where we were today. Now, let's see, you, your question had two parts. Tell me again. Well, we were we were trying to figure out who was opposed and why they were opposed, basically. Well, in the first case, the it was obvious that the insurance industry, the casualty insurance industry, felt threatened. They thought thought we were trying to be self-serving. And they failed to, at this point, they failed to understand the benefit to the consumer, the benefit to competition, and, and so on and so forth. They just, they felt threatened by it, and they were adamant that this was uh, the incorrect thing to do. And you got to remember, at the time, there were national insurers writing contracts with national vendors in secret, uh, which still happens today, and uh, that those things they felt were being threatened. So we, we lost in that particular session. The second session was, um, let me go back and say that during that first year that we were doing this, none of the opposition was in public. It was never at a hearing. It was never at a committee meeting. It was always done behind closed doors somewhere because all of a sudden, even with the uh, votes that we'd gotten, we had things that just worked were not there previously. Didn't make sense. Uh, somebody had somebody's ear. Somebody, and I think <laughs> when you look at this politically, I, I'd never be a very good politician. But, <laughs> but the, the things that they do when they know they have uh, the votes uh, to to keep it from happening, they don't have to get to go through the fight or through the discussion or through the openness and the transparency. They just know at the end they're going to win, and and that was the case. Joe, the people that were trying to influence legislators, were, were, were these volunteers or were these professional people? Did you hire a lobbyist or did the opposition hire a lobbyist or did you both hire lobbyists? The, uh, let me, let me, uh, let's see, there, there were, the first question, I mean, the question previous was that we had little different opposition in the second session. At okay. this point, at this point, national vendors came and testified one after another. Uh, at certainly the, the important hearing in opposition, not with very much substance, but they were opposed. Uh, the committee saw through that, and still we came through that with unanimous uh, agreement. Now, how how did how were these things testified now? National companies, 
and very large Goliath-type companies obviously have lobbyists, uh, whether we whether we know who they are and so on and so forth. Uh, people who are in the know know who they are because they all have to register and so on and so forth, and you can find them if you know who they are. Do, now, do the large companies that are affected have lobbyists? Absolutely. Is this insurance companies or repair companies or both? When you say large both. companies, okay, both. 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 Okay. both. Okay. Now, certainly, large insurance companies have lobbyists constantly. I mean, they have attorney staff. I mean, we're right. talking about huge, gigantic companies. Of course, they have lobbyists and they have attorneys and that sort of thing. And in this case, the national vendors that were affected uh, hired a lobbyist. Now, because I'm in the restoration business, I'm not a politician, I'm not an attorney, and so on and so forth, I knew I was not expert in this area, and I certainly the first thing I did when I was committed to this was uh, I uh, investigated, talked to some uh, friends, and found a lobbyist that was a trusted uh, lobbyist uh, and an effective lobbyist, and I hired that company, a uh, lobbying company, to guide me through the process, and certainly uh, we would have not done well had we not had that lobbyist in place, because so many of these things are um, done with uh, casual conversation in the, in, the, in the courtroom, because you say, oh, well, what about this or that? And if I offer an amendment, are you going to be okay with this or that? There's many decisions that have far-reaching uh, effects that are made in what seems like a casual way, but they're, they're really much more calculated. And so the lobbyists, their job is to, to keep the, their finger on the pulse of how these things develop and, and to uh, sit down and talk to people and to present a position and talking points. And if there's resistance, uh, to get the information to say, uh, this is why we think we're doing the right thing. And the lobbyist was invaluable. Now, when we testified before all of these committees, there were no professional people in the sense of hired people. or uh, They were all people from the restoration business, and we intentionally, in my case, in, in Colorado, we have a very, very large geographic area where people are spread out, and we, we have 63 counties, and we tried to make sure that we had, we, we studied who was on the committee, we looked at uh, their representation and made sure that as much as possible we had someone from their particular area to come in and speak to how this bill would affect their business and their community. Hmm. That, was, that was very, very effective because when you have someone driving 300 miles to come to a 10-minute hearing saying, this, is, this affects my business, and Mr. Representative, we'd like for you to uh, uh, to look at this with a uh, from a, our standpoint. And you are uh, my representative, basically. And you are my representative. It crosses party lines, and 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 people. Uh, we have a we have a lot of rural communities. I mean, we have it, it's genuinely effective because they're real people with real problems, and and we're proposing real solutions, and it's. Uh, it, it, it worked quite well. We were pleased with that because we were able to get representatives from businesses that would be uh, under 
$200,000 a year businesses, clear to businesses that would be multi-million dollar businesses and, and from big, bigger cities like Denver, so on. And they, they all testified and very uh, politely and uh, it, it worked quite well from our standpoint. That was very helpful to your side. I'm just curious, you mentioned that you hired um, this lobbyist. Did you take that out of your own pocket? Did you have some support from other restoration contractors in the area did any of the industry associations help you out with this joe well, in, the, in the case of the first uh if it's uh, none of my business just tell me no, but the first <laughs> round, we did get we did get support from uh other uh, from our organizations in this case uh ascr who has now become ria iicrc uh PCUCA and SCRT contributed to our first effort, uh, but uh, a large part of this was uh, certainly uh, money that uh, my company put into it because, unfortunately, most of our people in our industry don't think that they can make a difference, and I'm I'm just uh, constantly amazed at how we do not seem to understand that in general in large groups that we can make a difference and uh, that was the first year I I must say that in 2006 2007 which is when this legislation passed uh, I have to to date I have not received a single penny from anyone other than from my company to to sponsor this legislation so Having said that, it's just because I was committed to it and I did not want it to fail. I think that what I would like to encourage for the future, though, is already happening, and that is I'm seeing such things as IAQA, uh, RIA, SCRT, and uh, IICRC all in their board meetings are discussing we need government uh, committees to... Uh, understand the legislation that affects our industry and that we need to try to have some influence on that. Now, uh, I, I think those things are happening, and I think that while this was an individual success in a small, in a state that doesn't have all the a giant population, that the people are going to begin to realize that they can make a difference. It doesn't have to be huge amounts of money, but it has to be well thought out and well presented, and it's going to take some money, but that each of us can make a difference if we will stick together and and create uh, create some of these things together. Okay, Joe, we've got a little issue here. P U C C A S C R. Okay, there it is. I was I was waiting. The C J wasn't on the, he was on the horn. A, there. He was having a donut. He was having a donut on the, on the side of the road. Uh, we've got the acronym police. Can you help me out a little bit? P U C C A. Most of our listeners are used. You know, they're familiar with Indoor Air Quality Association, Institute of Inspection, Cleaning, Restoration, Certification. I'm not familiar with P-U-C-C-A and S-C-R-T. Can you tell me who they are? The, the, uh, the two things that I, I said there, uh, the Professional Carpet and Upholstery Cleaning Association, which uh, is about a 10-state uh, set of representatives, is more in the West. Uh, and it small group of like-minded people in, in our area. They are now certainly... Uh, part of larger uh, 
meetings such as connections and that sort of thing. The SCRT, uh, gosh, Cliff, what was their previous acronym? But that's the group from uh, more in the east and south, and, and they have representatives all over the country, but again, it's a smaller group than groups like RIA, uh, who's, who's really a national group for our industry, but they were just smaller groups that understood that, that uh, we needed help to try to sponsor the legislation, and so they were carpet and upholstery cleaners and, and uh, SCT actually, SCT actually Society of Cleaning and Restoration Technicians, and the listeners may not know this, and Joe may not know this, but uh, the, S- the Society of, of Cleaning and Restoration Technicians, the SCRT, the uh, Colorado group, the PCCA, uh, are both shareholders in the IICRC. IICRC is owned by uh, regional trade associations, and they're both shareholders. Great. Okay, Cliff, next over to you. Oh, yeah, Joe. It seems to me that one of the primary beneficiaries of this law would be consumers, and I was wondering whether you received any support you know, financial or volunteer work or anything from consumer advocacy groups? Not not the way you would put it. We received, um, I don't think that the consumers realize, and this is one of the reasons that this process is, has happened the way it has. They, people don't really do things when they're not affected. Well, when you're in an emergency situation, which is what we respond to, this only happens once in their life, and so you know they're they're typically the consumer doesn't really realize um, that their rights have have been taken away from them. Now, having said that, one of the reasons that Dorothy Butcher, our state representative, was uh, particularly uh, helpful was because she had had a kitchen fire. She knew what the process was. She knew how she'd been steered. She watched the process. And uh, so she knew uh, from firsthand what had happened. A similar thing happened to Abel Tapia, the senator who sponsored it in the Senate. He had had a situation where he had been steered, and when he resisted, he didn't like the reaction. And so consequently, these people had personal experience, and at that point, they were consumers. Ultimately, they were influential in in the legislature, but... That was one of the reasons we were we were effective, I think, is they had personal knowledge of the way these things were uh, being handled, and they were not happy about it. Joe, we don't we don't want to dwell on this, but um, did what kind of backlash did you get? Did you get some backlash? Well, certainly, uh, when you do these sorts of things, uh, and they are political, you have different political parties and different philosophies, and so on. Uh, when you do things like this, uh, about half of the people in the world think it's it's great, and the other half think you just don't know what you're doing and you're you're off base. So certainly there was a backlash uh, for uh, myself and my business, and uh, it's uh, that's what happens. But you you have to you have to be able to. Uh, Keep your head up, adjust to the changes that are necessary, and move forward. I guess rearview mirror, Joe. If you had a chance to do it all over again, you know, knowing the time and effort and money that you put into it, and you know the backlash, and just you know, you're thinking about this and not thinking about other things. Would you do it again? 
absolutely. Okay, uh, then it was worth it. And my my own wife has asked me that question. She says, "Why do you do this?" And right. and, and I tell her, "I do not have a choice." Well, Hell, I like you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Joe. Well, if you know the passage of this Colorado Insurance Consumer Freedom Choice Bill, uh, or is passage of this bill changing the insurance repair industry anywhere else are there any other states looking at this and contemplating maybe um adopt or uh what's the proper word promulgating legislation of their own yeah i think i think the the simple answer is yes it is having an effect and let me say this the effect of this bill is we, we referred to it a little bit earlier depends on the funding depends on how um how it is, uh, how much effect it has is still to be determined. We have the legislation in place. Is it going to be enforced? What happens when things uh, are not, when laws aren't followed? I mean, we, we look at the, for indoor air quality, look at, look at the, what's happened when uh, we know that lead is bad for us, but there was no money to enforce uh, legislation for what happens when people don't do things correctly for lead. We're in a little bit the same situation here. We have legislation, but unless it is carried through, we we may not have as much effect as we would like. So it's up to us to be vigilant and to continue to to make sure that that we have some enforcement and some consequence for for not following the law. Now, is there in, a in penalty? Answer, is there a penalty for not following at it? This, at this point. At this point, we don't know. The answer is no, it's not in the bill, but we're going to have to, as we go through the process, determine does the insurance commissioner fine people or how do they do that? We, we don't know that yet because we're still early in this process and we're going to have to see some enforcement. But in answer to Joe's question, I think what's happened, I, I, don't, I know what's happened is uh, this has encouraged people I think we have people in about four states right now, according to uh, Don Manger, who is the executive director of RIA. He tells me that we have four states who will be, uh, we're trying to give them some uh, help with writing some legislation to introduce to their bills because we have people who are willing to carry this into their legislatures. So I think that's the type of thing that will happen is a little tiny bit of success here is going to encourage people to say, you know what, maybe we can make a difference. And my encouragement is that the industry, that all of us, the indoor air quality industry, the environmental industry, the cleaning industry, I mean, our future uh, depends on us uh, telling our story, telling how important we are. I, I think consumers uh, are so aware of their, in, of their environments at this point and uh, they're becoming quickly aware of how their health and, and is affected by their environments. And, of course, we deal with the cleaning of the environment, and we think that's one of the critical critical things is to clean the environment and to provide healthy places to live and work. So putting all of this together, uh, I think as an industry we can have a broad effect, and it's our responsibility to to do everything we can to continue to, to move in a positive direction. Well, thanks, Joe. Now, let me real quick, I want to summarize and ask a quick, quick question or two, and then we have to break to a couple of other segments we'd like to get to today. Um, so now you've got this bill passed, and that's 
been signed, so that becomes a law. That then goes to the insurance commission, and they will have to then write a regulation. Is that accurate? Yes. We, uh, well, it goes to uh, uh, the insurance. The, the law, the way I understand it, has been written, but certainly the regulation part of it, uh, the, the administrative part of it, is something that is still to be uh, determined how you put meat on this particular uh, piece of legislation. And, and here in Colorado, we have uh, an Administrative Procedure Act that uh, allows for uh, for input and comments and so on and so forth. And uh, this, the legislature will have to deal, and maybe it is the insurance commissioner at some point, as to what is the penalty for violating the law. Uh, I, I'm not as familiar with that process, but you can be okay. sure that I'm going to stay with my lobbyist asking, you know, asking lots of questions. In other words, where do we go from here? You know, yeah. that that was my question. I'm not sure either, and um, we'll have to address that down the road. Um, I'm, assume, I'm assuming this will affect independent contractors in a positive way. It may hurt some of the franchise uh, operations out there a little bit. And um, I wanted to kind of just summarize those issues. And then I'd also like to ask real quickly, is there anything in this segment, we want to bring you back here for another segment in just a second, that you feel we missed, Joe? No, I, I think I think we've covered it. I would uh, make a comment on your last statement. I don't believe it It hurts franchises. I mean, good good people in good – I mean, if you're a good contractor, uh, no matter what, affiliation you have, I, I just think it's best for everyone, the consumer and for small business people. Well, thank you for that. I, I appreciate you correcting me there. I think that's an important point, and uh, I do appreciate that. I, I think you're correct as well, and uh, thinking back on it a little bit. Okay, could you please stay on the line and, and come back with us in just a minute? All right, thank you. Okay, thank you, thank you Joe. for that cj cliff and i don't always agree on everything but we do believe that joe you you were very brave in your uh, fight with this issue town of Woods, town of Three. 
Today's sound off deals with licensing for application of antimicrobials. The subject of whether carpet cleaners, water damage restorers, mold remediators, HVAC system cleaners need a license to apply disinfectants, sanitizers, and antimicrobials is commonly raised. The quick and easy answer is that in the vast majority of states, including Pennsylvania, where we broadcast from, a license is not required. And in a minority of states, a license may or may not be required. The Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, often known as FIFRA, is enforced by both Environmental Protection Agency and by the states, and the enforcement is through the state departments of agriculture in most cases. My impression is that when FIFRA was first instituted, the term fungicide referred to agricultural fungicides and was intended to exclude antimicrobial products such as disinfectants, sanitizers, and the like. If it was the federal government's intention that FIFRA oversee the application of disinfectants, a term other than fungicide, such as disinfectant, bactericide, or antimicrobial, would have been more appropriate for use in naming the law. A component of FIFRA was mandatory licensing for pesticide applicators. Had the government intended that janitors, maids, waitstaff in restaurants, carpet cleaners, insurance repair workers who routinely apply disinfectants to have licenses, the law would have initially been more specific or would have been amended to be more specific. I maintain that antimicrobial products are different and should be categorized and regulated differently. As a service to our antimicrobial customers, I periodically assign a staff member of ours with the responsibility of contacting the appropriate regulatory agency in each of the states to determine what the state's specific policies are on the subject of licensing requirements for antimicrobial applicators. The contact people at the state level generally refuse to respond in writing to our requests for information. I opine that some industry trade associations, certification and standard writing bodies, and educators who work in consort with them, although well-meaning, do much more harm than good to both consumers and contractors alike by needlessly alarming consumers to the potential hazards of antimicrobial products. These groups accentuate the negative while overlooking or minimizing the important benefits and value these products provide. This dramatic overemphasis of a negative has had a deleterious effect on our industry, fueling litigation and higher insurance premiums. EPA-registered antimicrobial products must go through mandatory third-party toxicology testing, resulting in product labeling which regulates how the product may be legally used. EPA-registered products must include the following statement, quote, it is a violation of federal law to use this product in a manner inconsistent with its labeling, unquote. Chemically, there is little or no difference between the products which consumers buy to clean and disinfect their households and the products used by professional cleaners and remediators for water damage restoration and mold remediation. If a consumer can go into a store and buy antimicrobial products and use them on their premises, why can't a professional buy the same or similar products and apply it in the same manner without a license? In fact, it is common for antimicrobials to be applied by employees wearing personal protective equipment to protect them from mold, and also in areas which are segregated from adjacent occupied areas.
Make a list of the products consumers commonly have under the kitchen sinks, in their laundry, garage, and garden shed. Many of these products are much more hazardous than the antimicrobials your staff generally uses. Licenses aren't needed to buy or use these products. Antimicrobial products used for water damage restoration and microbial remediation are no safer, nor are they more hazardous than commonly used cleaning and disinfecting products. Think of the products a property damage repair firm will use to clean and remediate a fire-damaged home. Deodorizers, degreasers, heavy-duty cleaners, paint strippers, acid cleaners, solvent-based sealers, paints, stains, varnishes, waxes, to name only a few. Restoration contractors wouldn't routinely review with the client the product labels and material safety data sheets and point out all the potential hazards. How many gallons of smoke sealer do your crews apply annually? Do you tell your customer that the sealer is potentially flammable? Do you tell your customer that it potentially contains high levels of VOCs, that it can cause respiratory irritation, etc.? I doubt it. When your workmen go to a supplier to buy a power tool, does the salesman point out the features and benefits of the tool and tell them how it'll help them do their job better, or does he tell them all the ways the tool can injure or maim them or damage property? Our industry needs to advocate that common sense should prevail. Professional pest control firms commonly use restricted-use pesticides, which the public doesn't have access to. In fact, pest control operators need a license to purchase these products, which are sold at a special pest control supply outlet. A national licensing program for applicators of antimicrobial products isn't necessarily a bad idea, and I would support the uniformity and reciprocity of licensing enforcement between the states. Most state pest control licensing programs require the applicant to pass what is called a CORE, C-O-R-E exam, and then pass tests in the desired specialties, such as wood treatment, wood destroying, insects, rodent control, etc. The problem is that the core exams test the applicant's knowledge of insects, rodents, and application equipment and have very little, if anything, to do with antimicrobial. So the use of the existing programs for licensing antimicrobial would be inadequate. Obtaining a state pest control license also requires the firm obtain special pesticide application insurance. My recommendation is to provide the consumer with a specimen label for the antimicrobial product you contemplate using, a product brochure, allow them to sniff test the product prior to its application. Should your firm consider it prudent, you can go further and have the client signed an informed consent. Should you wish to discuss the matter further, please do not hesitate to contact me. Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. I think, you know, I... You know, I, I I see the other side of the story all the time. I understand both sides of the issue. Um, I agree with you. I think one of the things we see a problem with is there's not strong enough enforcement of the most important statement you made in there, and that is that the label directions are the law. If, you, if we didn't have misuse and misapplication, I don't think this would be as big of an issue, and certainly people have every right to say, hey, I'd prefer you use some other product in my home. So. Absolutely. No problem with that. All right, let's move on to the last segment here. CJ? Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw
you, CJ. All right, for today's roundup, I just wanted to uh, quickly give a, a real quick background. There's been some uh, activity about a conflict of interest type of uh, addition to either the Code of Ethics or some kind of statement from uh, associations, and uh, I, I personally don't feel we've heard enough from contractors on that issue. And I wanted to bring Joe back in and Cliff here and do a little roundtable on the issue. Um, a lot of environmental consultants feel that um, there should be a conflict of interest, uh, code of ethics, or addition to the code of ethics that says that an environmental contractor cannot be uh, cannot do the assessment and or preliminary determination, whatever you'd like to call it on the same project and then also verify that the project is complete, that they need to bring in a third party. I'm just curious. I'd like to hear Joe first. What's your, what are your thoughts on that issue? Well, Joe, certainly this issue has come up in a, a number of uh, meetings that uh, when I'm involved with some of my colleagues and uh, I must say that uh, I'm probably uh, uh, one of the few people that would take the position uh, that I don't believe that we should be calling third-party uh, people uh, a, a great deal of the time. I, I think that some of the regulations we've created insist that we call third-party uh, people to clear projects and so forth, but I think in actual uh, practice, it's not happening, and of course, there's no enforcement anyway. My, my personal position is that we have a responsibility as individuals and as business people to handle our businesses at the level of our uh, training and, ex and experience and, and, and the level of our ability. When we are beyond our ability, we have the responsibility to look to some other level of expertise. Now, what I'm saying is, is this. I would like in my business to be treated as a professional, professional meaning someone such as uh, my attorney, my dentist, my surgeon, so on and so forth. If I go to one of them, if it's a very serious situation uh, that I, I may ask for a second opinion I'm, and I can evaluate uh, what the uh, consequences are, but if I have hired a competent professional to perform a service, and they tell me that I need a particular process, I have made the decision that I trust their, their competency, and for them to deliver that service is okay with me. If I question that they, because it's so serious that I, I want to make sure that I'm doing the correct thing, I could certainly ask for a second opinion. But having said that, if a, if a surgeon tells me that uh, I need a particular surgery, I may go ask for a second opinion. But just because he prescribed it doesn't mean he can't actually perform it uh, because I, I think it's perfectly fine for him to prescribe and to perform the service. And I believe that the similar uh, comparison in our industry, if I decide that a particular process is the appropriate way to handle a particular problem, I should be able to provide that service and determine when it's when it's complete and when it's complete I'm making that assessment also now certainly uh, I'm I have colleagues that would uh, be very strongly opposed to that uh, but when I sit 
in meetings and watch some of this, uh, often they're the people who have uh, agendas that are, uh, they have reasons for those agendas. I, I just, uh, that, that's basically, I, I would like to be treated as a professional. Okay. Now, there are, you know, I, I think I have an idea of, uh, Cliff and I were kind of talking about this earlier with you, and I think a lot of these policies come from actually regulations that are the, the thoughts of adding these conflict of interest come from regulations. In the asbestos industry, for instance, uh, many state regulations do require that a third party come in before and um, definitely after a project to verify that the project has been completed properly. And um, I think that's partially where it came from. I certainly understand the reason for that. It, a lot of it was the reason The reason was that, um, you know, cons- actually people in the states came to their legislators and said, look, we've been ripped off and so on and so forth. So um, I guess what I'm asking is, you know, do you see the trend heading that way? And, and where did it start within the indoor air quality industry, in your opinion? Well, certainly uh, there there was some parallels coming from the, the asbestos industry. And unfortunately, what always makes the headlines and affects these things is are the charlatans in the industry, the people who uh, were cooking houses and charging crazy prices uh, to get rid of mold and uh, to alarm people. Uh, and uh, the, the alarmists seem to be the one that got all the attention uh, in the news and, and consequently in some of the regulation things. Uh, I, I believe in the real world uh, of restoration that, that I have to deal with every day. Uh, those those are extreme cases, and, and I I just have chosen not to uh, not to address them. I I, I think that's a Charlatans key. will always be there. I agree with you wholeheartedly, John, but I think you hit on a key point. A lot of people are requesting these types of conflict of interest statements because of the mold is gold rush, all these people coming in, and they are there are many charlatans out there. So if we don't have a conflict of interest statement within associations that say if you uh, for instance, you can't be the environmental contractor and the uh, environmental consultant on the same project. How do we? How do we stop these charlatans? That's the. I guess that's the problem I'm having as uh, an industry member trying to figure out how do we how do we fix this issue. You know, I would like to just jump in for a minute. Uh, in the pest control industry in the state of Pennsylvania, prior to a residence being sold, there is a mandatory pest control inspection for wood-destroying insects. So it's common for the pest control operator to send out a wood-destroying insect inspector who will inspect the home. If he finds any evidence of wood-destroying insects, he will then prepare an estimate or a bid to do the repair work. Now, it's not mandatory that the person... Uh, buying the home or selling the home uses his services. They can get as many other bids as they want. The issue is, are there or are there not wood-destroying pests in that home, and how much is it going to cost to fix it? Myself and my crews are in much greater danger uh, and need protection in fire situations (laughs) and in sewer backup situations, uh, and we take that approach of protecting them and tra- training them and protecting them and providing equipment and engineering controls and all of the things that we need to in those situations uh, in, in a more 
intense way uh, because we we understand, I think, uh, that what the danger is. Uh, I, in answer to what you mentioned a little bit earlier, Joe, how, how do we solve this? I mean, how do how do physicians solve this? How do uh, attorneys solve this, and so on? I'm, I think we have to police our own ranks. I think we have to figure out as associations how to uh, how to help police our own ranks, and whether these are uh, sometimes training and certification things and maintaining credentials and so on. And when we when we find charlatans out there, that we figure out a way to uh, expose them. Uh, they're always going to be there. There there are bad attorneys, there are bad physicians, and so on and so forth. Uh, how how do they how are they regulated? I mean, a hundred thousand people a year die from hospital acquired infections. You want to get excited about something? A hundred thousand people come uh, die in a hospital from an infection they didn't have when they went in. Now. If we want to be concerned about people, there is something to be concerned about. And, and similarly, our industry needs to deal from within to do the best training, the best. Uh, I, I'm not sure exactly how we do it, but uh, we're, you know, we're, we think of ourselves as leading the industry as we get older and so on to try to help pull people through. Uh, I think we have some responsibility to, to look for an answer to your question and how do we regulate ourselves. Well, I appreciate that. I um, the other thing that I do find is that you know some people do uh, many actually many of the contractors I work with when I do training really enjoy or prefer to have a third party come in and door before and after it. They feel it helps to lower their liability. So you know I, I think they should have that option. I don't know yet. I'm still on the fence here whether they be fo should be forced into it. So I appreciate your opinion, and I, I certainly wanted to make sure that uh, we got it out on the air here, and maybe I can get a few people working on these conflict of interest issues to take a listen to this show. You know, do you think it's really conflict of interest, or do you think they, if they have a code of ethics policy that says what they would or wouldn't do, to me that's more important than having – I think code of ethics is more important than conflict of interest. Yeah. What do you think, Joe? I, I agree. I mean, we it is it would be unethical to do something beyond your ex expertise or to, to clear something that should not be cleared. I, I think you're right. That, but how do you enforce that, and how do we uh, get the respect that we're looking for? Um, again, I think we have to look to the people who've done this before us. We look to other professionals and try to perhaps mimic the success and, uh, and avoid the failures. But there are always going to be failures, and those are the things that get the publicity. All right. We're doing a lot of good things, and I, I appreciate it. Well, thank you for that, too. We are doing a lot of good things, and uh, we'd also like to once again thank you for joining us here today, Joe, and for your good works out there in uh, Colorado, and let's continue to work toward helping make things fair you know, nationwide. And fight the good fight. Keep fighting yep. the good fight. Well, Thank thanks. you for him. All right. We appreciate it. All right. Well, uh, that was another wrap for what we got here. Show 46, I believe that would be, Cliff. My goodness. Time flies when you're having fun, Absolutely. huh? Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks again to Joe Arrigo for joining us today. Also, of course, I always like to thank my co-host here, Cliff Slotnick. Always a pleasure. Our cyber jockey, CJ. Of course, Joe. Our technical director, Dr. Wild, couldn't join us today, but uh, we'll get him back here next week. Most importantly, we want to thank our growing group of loyal listeners. 
Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 